big old bet. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Fourth Wall, the podcast. My name is Elena Newell. And my name is Abigail Brazier. Today, guys, we have a very special treat because tis August. I cannot believe it is August already. Where has the Me time neither. gone? Sheesh. But what does August usually mean for the people, Gail? Well, August, if if you are a student, usually means that you're going back to school. So we thought it would be a great idea if we used August to highlight different issues in our community and the theater industry as it exists in the worlds of higher education and the experiences of students and of faculty members. And you know what we can do if we hit some roadblocks along the way on this great journey that we are all traveling upon to get to that degree. But I also think it's important to know that that Sometimes higher education in this field isn't for everybody. I think that's important to note. You can be successful with or without a degree, but we are using this month to highlight the experiences of those people who are choosing to get a degree and examining how we all learn together and build our craft and all that good, delicious, tasty, magnificent, extra juicy stuff. Yes, and so we are talking to two deans of fine arts programs at different universities, Uh, Mr. Harvey Young, Dr. Dean Harvey Young, and Dr. Dean George Brown. Um, Harvey is a black man and George is white. So do you want to tell us a little bit about George, Gail? Yeah, of course I do. So Dr. Dean George Brown is the dean of the College of Fine and Performing Arts at Western Carolina University. Prior to his appointment at Western, Brown served for 10 years as the chair of the Department of Theater Arts at Bradley University. During his final year at Bradley, he also served as interim chair of the Department of Interactive Media. He taught and served as head of the directing program at Texas Christian University. He has worked professionally in university and professional theater for more than 20 years, filling a variety of positions ranging from director to actor to fight choreographer. He has directed more than 100 productions in theaters across America, the Caribbean, and Europe, including The Tempest, Cyrano de Bergerac. Did I say that correctly or did I butcher it and sound like a terrible theater person? We'll never know. And the world premiere of Smile Native Smile, presented at Carafesta on St. Kitts. Brown was the recipient of the President's Appreciation Award and the Theodore C. Burgess Award for Excellence in Interdepartmental Collaboration at Bradley University. He holds a master's degree of fine arts and directing from Penn State and served in the U.S. Navy. Yes, and I think it's also important to note that George Brown is also the dean of the school that me and Gail attend right now. The second dean we are bringing in today is Dr. Harvey Young. Okay, I'm going to try not to fangirl because this guy is the definition of black excellence, but I'm going to try to contain myself. I'm not going to read his whole resume because we'd be here for hours. Harvey Young is the dean of the College of Fine Arts at Boston University, where he is also the professor of English and theater. His research on performance and experience has been widely published in 
academic journals, profiled in the New Yorker, Wall Street Journal. As a commentator of pop culture, he's been on CNN, 2020, Good Morning America, as well as the pages of New York Times, Vanity Fair, and People. He has published over seven books, including Embodying Black Experience, which I highly recommend, basically talking about what society decides and has deemed is the black body and what those societal norms and expectations does to actual black people as they move through the world. Incredible read. I also need to say that he is stacked when it comes to education, okay? A former Harvard and Stanford fellow, Dr. Young graduated with honors from Yale and holds an MA from the University at Buffalo and a PhD from Cornell, okay? Before he was a dean at Boston University, he was a faculty member at Northwestern University, where he was also professor and chair of theater and held appointments in African-American studies, performance studies, and radio, television, film. Fun fact, he also taught our Black princess, Meghan Markle, while he was at Northwestern, which is just unrelated to anything we're talking about today, but I love her, and that's iconic. And today we are sitting with Harvey and George to just talk about what deans can do and what faculty members can do uh, in these BFA programs and MFA programs to make their students of color feel safe and protected and what they feel their job is as educators when it comes to changing what the world looks like in terms of performance and making the people we see on stage look just like the people we see in real life and yes and how to hold themselves accountable how to hold their faculty accountable how to hold students accountable and give students a platform and a place of empowerment where they feel comfortable to learn and grow to the greatest like feeling your expectations and the potential but just like blowing that through the roof shattering all the ceilings being the best artists and people that we can be together and So yeah, with all that, I hope you guys enjoy today's episode, A Tale of Two Deans, if you will. Uh, Yeah. Hello, everyone. We are here with Dr. Harvey Young and Dr. George Brown, two deans of two really big colleges in the fine arts. And today we are just here to discuss diversity in arts and uh, the job of educators in that challenge and in that fight. Welcome, you both of you. All right, George and Harvey, you two lead programs of of scholarly expeditions that are sacred to the students who engage in those programs and cultivating, you know, careers and lifelong learning of these fields. So we would love to hear what you guys believe are the defining responsibilities of a theater educator, especially when it comes to upholding diverse programs and students. After you, George. Oh. <laughs> uh, um. I came to theater through uh, um, non-traditional experiences, right? I did theater when I was in elementary school and in high school, but I went in the Navy for six years before I ever went to college. And while I was traveling around the world, the thing I think I learned greatest is that uh, the diversity that the world offers opens up your mind to a lot of other possibilities. 
And so if, if I were to say one thing about what a university can do to, uh, to uh, um, help uh, promote diversity is that we are opening up the world to a lot of different eyes. Uh, Thornton Wilder said that the theater is the most immediate way in which one person can share with another what it means to be a human being. And I think that's at the core of what we do. So I'll, I'll stop with that, that, that we're here to open eyes to differing worlds and differing perspectives. And there's a lot of issues that, that, uh, that tie into that. Oh, well, I, I totally agree. And I think that you know, one of the things that we can do within colleges and universities is to offer a model you know, for, or at least a template for how the future of theater can be. I mean, we often look around and we see all the lacks, you know, like the non-existence uh, or the limitations around diversity, uh, the lack of opportunities, uh, the resistance to color conscious and inclusive casting. And I think that universities have the opportunity to demonstrate uh, to everyone, you know, how effectively it can be done. And if you think about the fact that we're training the next generation of producers and directors and actors and designers, what we do on our stages within our community, within universities and colleges, you know, should change how we approach and make theater in the future. So that's my exactly opinion. for the people who are listening, but obviously aren't being able to see, aren't able to see this. Um, George is white and Harvey is black. Fun fact. Um, for both of you, uh, <laughs> uh, Harvey, we'll start with you. Um, do either one of you feel an extra responsibility to help promote diversity? You, Harvey, as a black man, and then you, George, coming from a white man's perspective, acknowledging your own privilege. Do either either one of you take on responsibility a little bit more, or like feel an added pressure to use your position to promote diversity? For, for me, certainly, and, and it, it has two parts to it. The first is my own work. I'm a theater historian, and I write about race uh, in performance, race in theater history, uh, why it's important for us to uh, read, uh, but also to stage uh, the stories and experiences of uh, not just Black, but uh, certainly African-American, uh, Indigenous, and people of color. Um, so it's not a case where you're only seeing um, uh, non-black experiences or non-people of color experiences on the stage. So, so that's the first thing. It's, it's, a, it's a real personal mission for me as a scholar. Uh, and, you know, the, the reality is that, you know, I spent my life often being one of very few or often the only person who has my complexion in a room. Uh, and that also applies, uh, you know, in terms of the, the world of deanship, <laughs> the two, I would say. And, you know, it's, it's, it's meaningful and, it, and it's important to me that the experiences that I've had uh, which you know, several of them have been, and more than several have been negative, uh, don't repeat across the, the next generation. So when I hear a student or hear someone in the world talk about, uh, this was my negative experience in an acting classroom, this was my negative experience with, with casting, uh, what's different is that as, as the dean, as the person who can change the structure, who can create systems uh, and shift systems, uh, I feel like extra responsibility to bring about change. Part of my entire career has been advancing diversity and inclusion, but I got to say, we've done a really lousy job at it. And I think one of the first things that, that higher ed needs to do, and I think the, the theater needs to do, is admit that we have failed. You know, um, I moved from Winnipeg, Manitoba to Birmingham, Alabama in 1968, and uh, which sort of dates me. I was 10 years old at the time. But I remember white only and black only bathrooms, right? Um, 
I was one of the first students in uh, middle school when we moved to Gainesville, Georgia, to be in busing. And I was bussed over to the black neighborhoods, right? I mean, that that's what we were. it was called. We're going to the black neighborhoods, right? Uh, but every day I got on the bus and came back home to my white neighborhood and all that privilege still existed, right? I don't know that I fully understood what privilege meant until the last five or six years ago. And I think we have to, at, at a foundation, no matter how hard we have tried, I think we still have to acknowledge that failure in order to be able to move on. Um, I'll give you a, a, a very small example. Um, I had, uh, uh, I had the wonderful opportunity to become the artistic director of a theater down in the Virgin Islands right after graduate school. Uh, uh, because of, of uh, people who knew me, who recommended me for the position, I was brought into a predominantly uh, African culture, Caribbean African culture, as a white man who's never lived down island. And, and I know that there were people on the island that were capable of doing that job easily. Matter of fact, one of my best friends, David Edgecombe, was doing the exact same job over on St. Thomas as I was doing on St. Croix. Well, the reason David and I became fast friends was that almost the week that I arrived, David wrote an editorial to the local paper saying that Island Center is for the white folks only. And if you looked at the season and everything that they offered, he was absolutely right. But in my sense of privilege and out of ego, I said, no, it's not, and I'll prove it to you. And so David and I met and we started to produce uh, uh, Caribbean plays in the theater. We changed what was happening, but in my sense of privilege, I actually denied David's truth. I said you were wrong when he was absolutely right, right? So even good intents, uh, the intentions to help make positive change, from this sense of privilege, if we don't open our minds and our, and our hearts and our ears to what's being said around us, we're actually continuing the systemic racism. We're helping to keep it institutionalized. And I think that's, that's one of the big things that we're dealing with. Uh, Elena, you know that yesterday, the name of our theater was renamed the University Theater in the name of the, the Hui who was a former governor of North Carolina and who was a staunch supporter of, of uh, uh, segregationism and, and anti-civil rights, his name was taken off the building because it was the thing we should do, right? I think that's, that's where we're faced at right now. Uh, um, um, whether you wanna call it the great awakening or the great listening or, or history has just converged at a certain point in time, I know I've been dealing with these same questions since the 1970s, but we're still dealing with them today. So that goes back to my original statement. I think we have failed and we have to acknowledge that if we're gonna move forward. There, there is a way in which the field has moved backwards. And what I mean by that is that specifically, specifically if you're looking at black theater, there was more black theater that existed uh, in the late 1970s in terms of more black theater companies, more uh, university uh, black theater groups uh, that existed in the 1970s than there exist today, right? So you might say, if, if you're a historian like I am and you're to, to, to see uh, like where are the authors coming from, you know, when were, when were they most produced, you'll see a steady decline uh, over the last 
uh, two decades. Uh, even as you um, have a few people who've been recognized with uh, these more recognizable, more major awards, the volume of production is is, is down. And, and I do think that you know it is necessary for us to you know look at uh, how to bring not that just bring back you know, but to kind of reinvigorate uh, this. Uh, you know, the, the production of this work, you know, so I think that in many cases it's rediscovering uh, underproduced plays and also championing the work of, of new artists. But Harvey, you're making the exact same case that August Wilson made back in 1996 when he, he, he wrote his treatise on the ground where I stand. And, and I remember the, 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 uh, um, it turned American theater on its ear to hear August Wilson say that multiculturalism in theater is the death knell uh, to African-American theater. And, and I'm sitting here going, you know, I'm, I'm uh, at the time I am a firm believer in, in, uh, you know, uh, colorblind casting. I actually, now I prefer what Peter Brook calls it color rich casting. Right. But, but that, that whole idea that, uh, in order to survive, theater needs to, cultural voices need to be kept pure in order for those voices to be heard. Right, well, I mean, I think that for, for August Wilson, right, there were, there were the two aspects uh, to the ground on which I stand, right? And one of them uh, was that, you know, when he gave that speech, he was being honored. Uh, he was being mm -hmm. recognized as essentially the savior of American theater, because American theater is always dying. It's, it's been dying. <laughs> for 100 years now. And, and so when August Wilson stood before, you know, I think it was a TCG um, uh, yeah. crowd, yeah. the industry was patting itself on the back to say, look, uh, theater is alive, you know, it's, it's diverse, uh, it's multicultural, we're honoring August Wilson as the most famous playwright working today. And he stood up and he was just like, no, uh, there are some serious issues and problems here. And that was the awakening. The awakening was that the person who was at the pinnacle uh, was saying how wrong things are. And, and, and in a way, it's kind of like uh, the recent campaign. I forget the, the, you know, the, the uh, official title of it, but there were um, a couple hundred uh, black, indigenous, people of color, theater artists who've worked quite successfully on Broadway, you know, who talked about racism and their experiences on Broadway. So what does it mean when you have people at the very top talking about how hard things are? So there's that. And the other part of thing that the other part of August Wilson's uh, critique, right, was that, you know, it's not just having a black person, an African-American actor play Willie Loman. It's actually talking about those experiences. And I think that that is, George, where you're uh, totally spot on, being able to make an assertion for the value of color conscious or color rich casting. So gentlemen, thinking about these things and talking about the change that can occur in these ways, and you know, George is saying that the system has failed so far, how do you implement change and uphold accountability and set an example in your institutions where education will influence the industry later you know as these generations get older we are the ones who will inherit this world essentially so how do you set an example 
for for what the world should look like and hold your faculty accountable and your students accountable and if you do not how will you moving forward past this great listening that's a good question i would say that in my experience what's been most helpful is actually to empower students and what I mean by that is to create opportunities for students to create their own production companies to on campus, that is, and to stage their work uh, because the student population changes much more quickly uh, and is not always, but often uh, more politically engaged with the moment than uh, than the faculty population. Because if you think about it, you know what distinguishes a university is that you know we look upon and we aim to spotlight expertise over time. Right, and what that also means is it means that uh, we have longer serving faculty that in order to achieve the rank of, of, of full professor, <laughs> right, uh, you, you've been doing this for a while. Uh, and it's helpful to have uh, newer voices who have the means to create productions, right? So I think that's the first step is to empower that. Now what can happen is that students can say, well, we're doing it all on our own. Like where's the, where's the administration stepping up for this? And the university and the administration is stepping up by creating the opportunity for students to lead their own uh, production work. Uh, so I think that is important. And the second thing I think that can occur within universities is to question what is the canon. Uh, too often, the idea of the canon uh, limits the ability to uh, stage and embrace uh, the voices of, that, that are often marginalized. And so I often tell uh, people, uh, is it a bad thing if a person graduates from a theater training program having not studied William Shakespeare. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I ask that question as a, as a, as a provocation uh, because it's like people will often say, it's okay to graduate from a theater program without having studied Susan Laurie Parks or August Wilson or um, many other artists. So, so I think those two things are helpful from my perspective. George, what do you think? I fully agree with you, especially about the canon. I also think it's how we teach the canon in that that we tend to think uh, um, we tend to work in chronology and so we give a lot of time at the beginning of our syllabuses to the dead white guys that lived thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago how much time do we spend on aristotle right and it's the foundation of everything that we teach and then when we get to the end of our 15 week semester we start to rush past all of these other significant writers uh, especially the artists of color that we should be spending more time on. And so maybe what we have to do is also think about flipping the syllabus, flipping that chronology and say, we're going to start with the voices that you need to be hearing today. And then we're going to reflect back on why Aristotle means something today to us, right? Uh, um, I think uh, uh, just uh, you mentioned Shakespeare, you know, we all sat through that English class. Uh, going, God, this is boring, I hate this. And it's because Shakespeare wasn't meant to be read, it was meant to be seen performed, right? And I think that all these other voices need to be performed as well. And I know there's there's a level of controversy about, do, you know, when you don't have a lot of African-American students, black students within your program, and, and you put on a play, uh, 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 we're getting ready to put on, on Barbecue by Robert O'Hara next year, right? And so all the African-American students, we've already had this conversation, are going, oh, we're going to get cast in the black roles because that's what's needed for the play versus all the white kids are going, you know, look at all the other opportunities I have. So 
even with that controversy though, we're not just doing those plays for the black students in the program. We're doing them for all the white students in the program and the other students of other color because they need to hear and see that, that, that canon as well. They need to experience it. it. It goes back to what Thornton Wilder says. You know, we wanna show them all these different perspectives of life so it helps to inform them. Um, so I think the, the performances become very, very important within the work that we do as well. Um, it, it, it's, sorry, go no, ahead. No, no, go, go ahead, go ahead. No, just on, the, on that line, um, I do think that one thing that I've noticed that's been quite challenging in, in terms of staging the work of Black, Indigenous, people of color authors uh, and, and creating those experiences on stage has been the tensions around casting on, on a college campus. And what I mean by that is that um, I've seen scenarios, uh, not where I am now, but elsewhere, uh, in which whenever a black play was announced, then uh, people, students in the majority would say, oh, it's not fair. Like this, like, like, yeah. we, you know, like we have to audition for these other roles. Whereas, you know, like you're a shoe in to play the lead for this or that, you know, so then it makes a person sort of question, um, you know, whether or not they were legitimately cast uh, or is it just because, you know, there are very few people of color. And then I've also seen scenarios where uh, someone will say, you know, I really want to play uh, Juliet. I really want to play Hamlet, you know, but I feel as though um, I don't have that opportunity because uh, the university needs me to play, you know, this role because, you know, there are only six people like me who can play this role and, you know, I, I don't have a choice. You know, so I've seen that, you know, and, and it makes it really difficult for university administrations because uh, someone might at a distance critique how many plays you're, you're staging by certain authors, but you also want to allow agency uh, for your students to be able to choose the roles that make sense for them. And certainly if you think about how people go into the professional world and how the professional world can uh, truly delimit options for uh, actors of color, you know, it is important to make sure that uh, students have the experience to play a variety of roles, not only those that they're going to be in some ways um, re you know, face restrictions you know, in terms of their choices about. And we may be able to get past, in higher education, we may be able to get past some of those tensions if we uh, take sort of some of the mystery out of the auditioning process. If we talk to our students and explain choices, why are we choosing these plays for the season, the importance of the play for the season, and, and as we sit and talk with the actors about their casting and why they were cast, I think that we need to really talk about strengths and weaknesses and concerns. So, you know, if we treat our actors, our student actors as individuals, and we are honestly assessing their work, and we're being truthful about that, hopefully a student's not gonna go, oh, I was cast because of, right? Um, uh, right, well, it, it's often not the student. It, well, it's not the student saying I was cast, it's, it's the other student yeah. who's the who's, who's standing next to that person. It's like you were only cast because of and and all the dressing room talk that goes right along with it. You know, I you know, and and I think that we want to acknowledge the there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of stress that emerges uh, within theater programs because you're you're quite vulnerable. And 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 let's be honest, within the world of theater, but also film, you can be discriminated against based upon how you look. Like the whole industry is based upon those choices happening. It's different than other fields. Uh, so there is a rawness to uh, the opportunities, but there's also a rawness to the rejections uh, or even the allegations that 
one is chosen uh, because of look over talent. And, and that is something that we have to deal with. Yeah, we are the art form ourselves. So the, I think one of the other issues that could help to, to um, minimize some of those tensions is that when we bring guest artists in, we're not bringing them in just to do the plays of color, right? So, so if we're bringing in a black director to direct a black play, we're setting up a stereotype right there. That's, that's, a, that's a continuation of the systemic racism or the institutionalized racism. Why don't we bring in that director to direct the Shakespeare and, and let it explore it from a different perspective? I think those are the things that we need to do more of as well. That's true. There, there are there are a lot of amazing uh, black professional artists, and in, in, uh, in particular, who are extraordinarily busy in February, and then, uh, yes. they, like they're just waiting for the phone to ring. You know, like eleven months of the year, and and that needs to change. I fully agree with you on that. You guys are both talking about making sure you're empowering your students. Um, how? What advice would you give to students who um, may be feeling a certain way, or? they're witnessing other students feel a certain way. How do you, um, as theater educators, how do you create a space where they feel open and welcome to come bring those problems to you? But also how should the students effectively approach their faculty and approach their deans when it comes to discussing these kind of topics, which can be kind of um, volatile sometimes when you bring it up in certain situations? I think that students know how to read their faculty fairly well. They know the faculty that are willing to listen. They, they can tell from, from the first days in the classroom, the perspective that a faculty member is going to be bringing to them. And so I, from the student's perspective, I think it's, it's building those relationships of trust where, the, where if issues do come up and they will come up, you can come and talk to a faculty member, finding the advocate, finding the support network within the university, right? Um, um, uh, Elena, you all did a wonderful job with the listening session that we ran here at the university a few weeks ago, uh, talking about the issues that, that students of color are, are feeling on the campus. And I think the most powerful thing that came out of that when I, when I reached out and asked about my participation, because I did not want to, you know, the title of Dean sitting in on a conversation could stifle conversation. The, the thing that you shared with me uh, uh, wonderfully is that we just want you to listen. And I think sometimes just making that simple of a request that you're not asking somebody to fix the problem yet. We, I don't want to walk away from not fixing the problem, but we want to hear what the problem is and being honest about it. I think that that's one of the first steps. I also honestly believe, uh, coming from, from my own undergraduate experiences where, again, this comes from, from being a non-traditional student and, and uh, uh, knowing that I have, I'm the poster child of white male privilege, right? I understand this. But I was considered, uh, my faculty in undergraduate school called me the student who thought he was a faculty member. And that's because I didn't have any problems addressing faculty because I was an older student. It was after six years in the Navy. I kind of knew what I wanted and where I wanted to go, and I wasn't going to take any BS about it, right? And so I think that at some point, if a student isn't getting what they need to hear, they need to say, uh, you know, if they're not getting the responses they need and want, they need to step up and say, we want to be heard. And, and I think we're at that point right now that, that needs to happen more. Yeah, I think I will add that in my experience, 
the 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 violence or at least the sense of disrespect that can emerge uh, within a university and these sort of within a classroom often often surfaces in the context of, of improvisation uh, that uh, it's either the class hasn't been adequately prepared uh, or it's some sort of uh, uh, improvisation workshop without rails, you know, in which uh, it just kind of goes where it goes and someone says something, right? Whether it's a, uh, you know, a spur of the moment coaching tip, you know, that reminds a person that they are seen as an other uh, or it's an exercise within the classroom you know, that makes a person hyper aware of, of, of their race. Um, uh, sometimes it's in a speech class or a dialect class uh, in which uh, there's not an appreciation for um, you know, the nuances of speech patterns and dialects. You know, so I think that those are all things that appear. Uh, and uh, individually, they're, they're, they can be small, uh, but they linger. And once they sort of happen again and again, that's where it really builds up. Uh, so I do think it's worthwhile to, if you sort of have the bandwidth, uh, if you're a student, uh, to talk to the faculty member, but then I also sort of encourage people to talk to advisors, talk to another faculty member with whom they might feel more comfortable, uh, certainly engage uh, the dean's office, if not, you know, and or the uh, chair of the program, because, you know, like these, these, these exercises, these incidents can repeat again and again and again, and, and more and more students can have that experience, and it can never be corrected. And in just by telling someone, at least someone you feel like you have some connection with, uh, that could lead to you know, a faculty member being pulled aside and, and being told, you know what, you know, you know what you did was not the right thing. Uh, here's a better way of going about it. But if that corrective step doesn't happen, it continues. And I've seen in theater programs across the country where uh, these sort of small asides have been repeated year over year for decades, and there's an entire generation of of alumni and theater makers, you know, who remember quite vividly. Um, that one exercise in the acting classroom that should not have occurred. Uh, so, so, so I think that that is worth um, pointing out. Uh, and you know, what can occur is that I think that in terms in terms of speaking out, sometimes a person thinks that a social media tweet is as effective as <laughs> as, as actually engaging a structure, uh, and and it's not. It really isn't because you know if you can actually have a conversation with a dean with a chair, uh, that. Um, you know, launches, you know, a whole series of events that can actually correct things on the ground. Uh, whereas, you know, the social media part of it, you know, there's immediate, there's immediate sort of uh, attention attached to it, but then someone's going to say, have there been complaints previously, you know, about uh, this person, about this exercise? And if there, if, the, if there haven't been complaints, you know, there's nothing that can be done institutionally because certainly none of us would ever want to work in an environment in which, um, you know, a tweet, you know, could undo us when there's never been an allegation against us, right? You know, so I think it's really important to do the in the system work. And then if you've done the in the system work and it has failed you, then be public, then be loud, you know, insist upon change. Both of you have careers that reach so far beyond the walls of your universities. So we would love to hear how you plan to use your platform from here on out to promote inclusion and change and diversity in students, performers, art, faculty, even beyond your institutions? Yeah, I mean, for me right now, to be, uh, like, let's acknowledge this conversation is also indexed by COVID. Uh, and, and COVID has just been brutal uh, to the theater and performing arts, any of the live arts. Uh, and I've been thinking a lot about what role the universities can play in helping to sustain 
uh, sort of uh, BIPOC theater companies, basically. Like, you know, what can we do to make sure that um, emerging artists, you know, have a voice? You know, can we sort of commission uh, artists? Can we bring them on board as artists and residents? Um, you know, can we help out struggling theater companies in some manner trying to figure out what that is, even as universities themselves are struggling financially uh, because of COVID? You know, so that's what I'm thinking about right now in terms of like, how do we make sure that, you know, the gains that we've made um, you know, over the last 20 years, even though it's been sort of checkered, as I noted, because the 1970s sort of decline, you know, don't further decline. And, and, and that's what I'm thinking uh, quite specifically. You know, and, I, and again, it's, it's, you know, in this moment, there is the opportunity to, again, create more and more opportunities for students to take the lead. And I think that's what people want to do. Uh, that's what these anti-racist campaigns are about. It's how do we do the work every day, every week, every year, uh, to actually bring about change, you know, acknowledging that there's a real uh, there's a real frustration with the slowness of change over the last decade or more. And I'd echo exactly what Harvey shared. Uh, um, there, are, but it is the consistency and um, uh, our tenacity at keeping after this and keeping this topic on the top of the pile. Um, uh, there are so many issues hitting us in higher education right now. Uh, uh, COVID-19, the planning for the fall semester, whether or not we're going to be able to put on performance seasons or not, you know, some universities have canceled them. You know, we're still waiting on, on direction from governors and from the system office on, on just simple protocols and things, right? Uh, uh, Broadway's not going to be opening up again until January. And so all of this is sitting on top of everything that we're doing. But I think the imperative for us is um, um, keeping this at the top of the conversation, having the conversation with the faculty and and um, and with our students, um, I was in a, a ICFAD hosted a forum on anti-racism in colleges of fine and performing arts a few weeks ago, and one of the last comments on it, which which really resonated with me, um, one of the uh, one of the hosts got on and said, you know, we're all really really familiar with Zoom right now. How many of you tried Zoom before the COVID-19 epidemic happened, right? Uh, uh, how many of you are really now more familiar with technology? You know, it took us two weeks to put the entire university system across the United States online. Two weeks because of the imperative of COVID-19. Where's the imperative for anti-racism on our campus? And if we, if anti-racism had an imperative as strong as getting online in two weeks was, how would we solve the problem? And it's still not there yet. As much of a conversation as we're having, as, as important as, as this is, there is still not a hot enough fire underneath it across higher education to make it the imperative that we can solve these issues with continuous action. And so I think that's the challenge that really sits in front of us. The way we're going to handle it is actually through you, our students. You know, this it's exactly what Harvey said at the beginning. We're, we're establishing opportunities for you to learn and grow as artists because you will be that next generation. And so that's really the hope is that we keep making enough noise and progress and keeping the issue hot enough on the plate that solutions will be, you know, and we start the solution process, but it's gotta move into the professional theater and it's gonna take years for it to continue to echo and move down from the dressing rooms to the main stages. That's all the time we have because, you know, as deans of universities, you would expect they're busy. Um, 
But I just want to thank you both for coming on here and sharing your words of wisdom. This was such a good conversation. And I think it just needs to be encouraged for more students to have the confidence to actually reach out to their faculty members and to their pe- their deans and things like that and not be afraid to ask questions because it's as simple as that. You can ask the question and they will answer it. There doesn't have to be a lot of red tape to get to that to that thing that seems impossible to reach all the time. So I want to thank you both for coming here. We're going to let you go. Thank you guys so, so much. This was great. Elena, Abigail, thank you very much for having us. And Harvey, it's absolutely a joy to meet you. I hope we get to meet really face-to-face soon. Absolutely. I agree. This was a lot of fun. Thanks so much.